This podcast is brought to you by lineupmedia.fm. This is Baseball Outside the Box with Peter Caliendo. Innovative thoughts from baseball's best coaching minds from around the world. Brought to you by lineupmedia.fm. Now your host, former USA Baseball National Team coach, Peter Caliendo. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you're at, in the U.S. and around the world. Welcome to Baseball Outside the Box. Hey, listen, this is a show that loves to interview baseball's best coaching minds who love to challenge the status quo. And I want to thank everybody in the U.S. and around the world. Again, we're over 100 countries where we have coaches, players, or parents listening. We want to keep expanding that, especially in the countries. We can keep expanding the number of people in the country. That really helps a lot. Again, what's our goal? Just help understand the development of baseball worldwide, long distance, and as far as long-term also, getting kids to play the game longer. That's the goal for everybody, getting them played the right levels and long. So let's keep doing us a favor, share the show, and we appreciate it. Hey, also, ESPN Honolulu, thank you all for having us on your website. We are growing there also, and we are expanding the show, and we talked about it in the last show. We're expanding it into Major League Baseball, all kinds of topics, but we continue to give you the international flavor and we are going to Germany today. This is going to be a great show. And I'll tell you why, because um, the German coaches are open-minded. They are developing many different theories in the training development, development long-term. And one of the best in the business is on the show today. Let me tell you just a couple things about him. Alper Boskirk, he is the MLB Academy director for Paderborn, and we'll talk about the academies in Germany. He has a master of sports science and in mass communication. Um, he teaches at the University of Paderborn. He teaches baseball, game development. We'll talk about that. Also, national team coach, 15U and 18U. Without wasting any time, let's get right to the heart of the program. Let me welcome our good friend who just spoke at the ABCA, and we'll talk about that. Alper, how are you doing, buddy? I'm fine. Thank you, Peter. It's great to be on the show. Thanks for having me. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm excited because, again, I love sharing, you know, the word about baseball worldwide. And, you know, Germany is one of the top baseball countries when it comes to developing. Um, you guys have done an incredible job, not only facility-wise, development-wise, um, and getting players to play in college in the U.S., high schools and professional baseball. Um, and I'm excited about talking about the program. Before we start, you know, the get into the development area, I want the people to know a little bit about your baseball background. Talk about growing up in Germany, playing baseball, and then all of a sudden how you got into coaching, um, and then we'll go from there. Yeah, so what happened was I lived very close to an army base when I grew up in South Germany. We had about 30,000 uh, stationed uh, troops, and uh, we had access. Before 9-11, you could just walk into the American housing areas, play basketball, and play baseball with the kids there, and you were invited. You were always welcome there, and you just wave at the guard going in, and that's how we picked up playing baseball, at least at a very early age, and we also picked up English pretty early, and um, so that's how it uh, got started, and um, then I played for a local club in Darmstadt, the Darmstadt Rockets. And um, from there, I was uh, recruited for the state team, for, for our state, for the state of Hessen. I did okay there. So I got an invite for national teams for the under-18s at the time. And I did not make the cut back then for the under-18 national team, but I was on a list, on a short list. And um, I then got recruited to the Mainz Athletics so at the time and still today are one of the top-tier teams in Germany. 
I played for that team for 10 years, um, played on the senior national team and uh, played in South Africa. And um, I retired from playing baseball once I had to do my master's because it was amateur sport for us. I'm, I'm very time consuming. I was not a very good um, college student or university student. I had to study very hard to get to keep up with the rest. And um, once I had to go for my master's, it was it was time to call it quits. And um, after that, once once I was in the process of graduating, I was contacted contacted by the Turkish Baseball Federation through the through the European Baseball Federation because they were looking for somebody uh, who could teach uh, baseball in Turkey because Istanbul was running for an Olympic bid. And next thing you know, I had a full time job. My parents are from Turkey, so I speak the language, and um, I was able to move to Istanbul after graduation, and I and, and I stayed there for five years from two thousand five to two thousand ten. And then I went to Austria for, for a stint. I uh, coached there with Adnan Kuchheim Athletics. And we won a championship that year when I was there in 2010. And then I was offered the job in Paderborn for game development. And I settled down in Paderborn. I have a house. I have a wife. I have two kids. And, um, yeah, that's the story, basically. Oh, that's awesome. Hey, listen, you know, you mentioned the Americans. And it's kind of interesting when the Americans introduced the game, you know, and you had American coaches, I think, at that time. Boy, Talk about the a big difference, I would think, back then and also on fast forward to now when it comes to, you know, coaching and game development. I mean, even in the past, you know, I was doing my best as a coach, right? And I and made many mistakes, but now there's so much technology, so many things to learn, you know, we're so more progressive. Talk about the difference in those two areas. Well, um, I think it's worth mentioning that I personally did not meet him because it was before my time, but we heard from Klaus Helmick, who passed a couple of years back, who was basically one of the godfathers of German baseball, um, that Ernie Banks, for example, when he was in the army, he played in Mannheim, you know, and, and there wow. were big names back then, major leaguers that were in the army uh, just post-World War II. And um, I mean, I don't know many more of the names, but, uh, you know, it's crazy. And the guys that we were introduced to, as players, especially, you know, they were stationed and they wanted to play baseball. And some of them had a professional background. Some of them claimed that they had a professional background. And um, it's the same way with coaches, you know. But back then, it was um, it was it was uh, it was awesome to have those guys because we were at the very beginnings and we could basically fast track some of the steps because the Americans had so much more knowledge about the game being their own pastime that. Um, as soon as you made it to a certain level in baseball, even as a kid, you would immediately be exposed to American coaches. So it would build your language skills, your cultural skills, and also you would get better at playing. Um, but I mean, if you look at it, it's like everywhere else, you know, the 80s and the 90s, if you compare what we're doing today, it's crazy. I mean, just the technolo technology that we're using and um, all the data that's available to us, be it for diagnostics for the athletes only or, or baseball-specific data like Repsoto or TrackMath. Yeah, Alper, give us uh, an idea. You know, the Germans obviously are doing really well when it comes to the development of the sport. What's it look like in Germany? How's the structure set up as far as clubs and how everything's organized? Compared to the States, it's very different because uh, sports is not bound to school. So we don't have high school teams. We have clubs that organize sports. So in school, you would only have PE classes. And then there'll be a baseball club. There might be a soccer club. There might be a Olympic handball swimming clubs. They have nothing to do directly with the schools. So that they, do not, um, they do not cooperate at that point. So what happens is the kids basically have to go um, from school, outside of school, extracurricular activities, going to those clubs and participate there. 
So there's a major difference right there. And when it comes to baseball specific, what we have done in Germany is we found several academies in, in, um, in regional academies. So you have one in Regensburg that is very successful with a wonderful facility. You have an academy in Bonn in the center. You have an academy in Paderborn. Those are the ones that have boarding facilities also. And then you have other academies that are, have commuters like Mainz or Heidenheim that also run exceptional programs. Hamburg is also one of them that, uh, um, that are developing young players and um, trying to get them into the national teams and then moving forward, getting either to pro ball or getting into um, collegiate baseball. You know, you've spoken at a lot of coaches, teams, whether it be the EBCA, the ABCA, you know, different uh, countries in Europe or all over the world. Um, you know, when we all understand that coaching is so important at the grassroots level to develop the sport, if you don't have really good coaching, what's that setup like in Germany when it comes to the coaching aspect with the young kids who's coaching these kids and what kind of educational program do they have um we emphasize a lot on on the guys who coach the 10 and under teams those are the guys who actually get paid the best as far as their hourly payments are concerned and it's really funny when you look at it uh in Germany, they're complaining about um, the teacher salaries, for example, that the lower levels you teach, meaning primary teacher, primary school teachers in Germany get paid less than somebody who's teaching high school. But if the person at the primary level is not motivated to do their job, you get a lot of problems at the high school level. And Absolutely. that's pretty much what, yeah, and that's pretty much how, how much how we see it um, at the T-ball level. If those guys are not very good at what they do, that problem is just going to drag over to the 12 and unders. And then you have guys who are already now trying to compensate for what has been done wrong at the lower levels, carries to the under 15s. And then eventually it lands in the academies. And then you're looking at guys who can't run from first to third, or they don't know how to tag up on a fly ball, fundamental baseball. And um, we have a matrix in Paderborn where we basically have it laid on paper in a manual, what you have to teach the players at what level, what, what kind of knowledge about baseball, and what kind of skill set they have to learn before they go to the next level. And we check on that too. So we make sure that we monitor practices, practice scheduling, um, trying to get better at that. And um, so far it's been, it's been going really well when we see the guys who are coming out of our system the last five, six years since we've done the structure we can see that it's made a difference to put the put everything on paper and have a manual that the coaches can actually use. Go like, hey, listen, this is in the this is something that you can look at, and it's not carved in stone like exercise by exercise. But for example, you will have things in there like um, that a kid has to be able um, uh, to run a certain distance or a certain uh, uh, has to throw a certain velocity at some level and and things like that. Things that you don't want to teach at uh, at certain levels. Um, be it breaking balls or, or split fingers at, at early age levels, things like that. You know, music to my ears, and I'll tell you why, because, man, for years we've been saying that, they, you know, hopefully there's a lot of educating people or people in, in schools that are listening to this, top educators, because we need the better teachers at the younger levels. I still do not understand how we do not understand it. I love two things. One, you said there, you're, you're paying coaches at the younger levels. I think that's important because you're getting more educated. They're, they're going to want to get better. Two, you're, you're structuring it for the young kids. And I agree with you 100%. I don't understand why more programs don't do that. That's why I love shows like this, because I think we need to spread the word that we need very good coaches at the young levels. Now, you said um, we. Um, who's we when it comes to German baseball? Does the individual clubs do their thing this way or does the whole country organize to do it in 
in that system? No, that would be, um, for us, it would be very impossible to do that because the clubs all have different backgrounds and, and financial needs, obviously. But um, you can see smaller clubs and clubs that are not known to develop, like be very successful at the semi-pro level in the Bundesliga here in Germany, that they just pound out national team players, you know, Stuttgart, for example. Um, and the reason for that is that there's been a core group of 12 and under coaches that have been working together um, for like seven or seven to 10 years, they started off as parents, you know, so they were more entertainers than baseball coaches and learned the yeah. baseball skill part later. But we learned from them that the lower the age level is, the more it matters that the entertainment is there and not necessarily a, a, an, an ex major leaguer that teaches a bunch of 10 and under players how to throw the ball, but to make it fun for these kids. And what we've noticed is that they had an exceptional track record of keeping players engaged. And like I said, pounding mm -hmm. out national team players, 12 and under and 15 and under. And um, there's no general plan that we, that we run. And it comes with disadvantages, obviously, but it also comes with a lot of advantages because it keeps the, the learning process engaged because you see something somewhere else, something that the Bond guys are doing that we didn't do before. What I like about it is that uh, it's very diverse, but at the same time, these coaches, us, the coaches, when I say we, we communicate a lot with each other. So for example, we got, we got our butts kicked at the German championships, 18 and under. And I, I had to call, I went over to the coach after the championship and said, I want to know what you guys do with your hitters, you know, because that was impressive. And we, we got to be so far away from each other that I want to know what you are doing. And that just shows you that kind of relationship has to build up over years. And you got to, you know, not everybody can go over there and ask that question and not everybody on the other side will give you the answer that I got was like, of course, Albert, let's talk next week. Let's set up a Skype call and, and we'll figure it out, you know, and those kind of things that those are things that I appreciate a lot while working here. Yeah, those are great. And, you know, the other thing is, um, you know, as you see successful programs, right, other people want to find out why you why you've been so successful. They ask a lot of questions. What I love about you is that you got an open mind. We call the show baseball outside the box, you know. We got to think outside the box a lot of times because why are we always doing the same thing all the time? It, it may not be the best thing or the best way to do it all the time. What about, and I think it's good for countries to learn from each other. You got to get kids to play the game. And I know the Germans are innovative. Um, a lot of times you can't go into schools and just show them the game of baseball because it can be boring. Are there unique things that you guys do at the young levels to attract kids to play the game? I think in every country, there is at least one game that is as close as you can get to baseball because it's a, throw game, a throwing ball and a hitting blind object with a ball. Every country has a game that is close to it. It could be a street game. In Turkey, it's called Celik Chomak. It has nothing to do with the, with the way we play baseball, but there's a kid tossing a ball and another kid hit, hitting the ball with a stick. So yeah. once, you, once, you, once you make that connection and you understand that, you know, maybe you have to break down baseball when you teach it in countries like that to a point where it gets closer to their game, what's originally have, have, has been there originally, and maybe not as close as you want it to be as a baseball, um, uh, as a baseball person, you would want it to be closer to the actual game. So what we've done in Germany is we've tried several things and breaking it down to a game um, that's called uh, translated burn ball. And Brennball, as we call it, is a game where basically somebody throws in a ball or kicks in a ball into a field and there are bases. 
that they have to run and nobody can be caught between bases when the ball is at a certain point in the field, when the defenders get the ball to the central field, right? They, they put it in there. And if somebody's between bases, he's burnt. How much closer do you have to get the baseball, you know? And the kids play that in elementary school. Grade one, the PE teachers run those games with the kids. We picked up that game and modified it slightly, bringing in basically a wiffle ball and a wiffle, and a wiffle bat. And that's the, all the equipment that we needed, which is $10, $15 max. Yeah. And um, in the state of NRV, where I'm located in North Rhine-Westfalen, we started a project where we emailed every primary school in the state and said, would you want to do this? We created a manual as a comic, which is only two or three pages long. And we send it to the PE teachers because, like you said, you cannot go into the schools directly all the time. You only have so much manpower and um, there's so much time. It's very time consuming. So we developed the game in a way that the PE teachers can run it without being baseball experts because they mm -hmm. run the same game they already ran before with a plastic yep. bat and a plastic ball. If that was a baseball bat and a, and a harder ball. All the, a lot of red flags are going up left and right. You know, furniture is going to get dam damaged. The gym is going to get damaged. Somebody gets a gun. It's going to get the bat in the head. Um, but you have to take a step back as a baseball, um, uh, as a baseball expert and say, we don't necessarily have to do it the way I did, you know, or the way I learned baseball because I love baseball and, and it feels almost like it's in my blood. And not everybody feels that way. A PE teacher only has so much time to run classes like that. And he doesn't want this to be complicated. And um, we reached over 5,000 uh, primary school uh, um, students that, this way. And we know that we reached them because they had to email us. Yes, send us a set. We sent them the set for free. And uh, it was cost efficient too, because a wiffle ball, even here in Germany, a wiffle ball and a wiffle bat together, you know, the set that you have, you can buy at Walmart in the United States, costs like $15. And we send out about 300 of those. So the, wow. the cost efficiency, contacting, getting in touch with a lot of kids um, was, was very high. And what we did in the second step was as soon as we got a feedback from the school that they want the equipment, we told the local club. Um, the club in the area, to, hey, these guys are interested in doing this. You might want to jump on this. And as a state federation, then we pulled out. That was it. Right, I want to get into the academy in a little bit, but I wanted to ask you, you know, in general, the coaches that you see working with young kids, what are the areas to really focus on early on to make sure that, what, like you said, one, have fun, to make sure they enjoy it. Two, they got to get better, right? Um, and, 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 as you get better, you enjoy the game more. So what are some of the areas that you guys focus on to, to do that? Well, I'm sure that there are a lot of philosophies out there, but what I've been focusing on is as I kind of build a hierarchy in baseball for myself, understanding how the game operates. Um, you cannot play baseball if the pitcher doesn't throw a strike. If the pitcher keeps throwing balls, and as we all know, if you work in, in, in baseball 15 under, 12 under in Europe, the kids have difficulties throwing the ball over the place. So that would be a number one priority would be throwing because uh, we're all of Europe play soccer. We're not natural throwers. I had an interview once where they asked me, when is baseball going to be big in Germany? And I said, when you, when you roll the ball towards a kid, if he picks it up and throws it back instead of kicking it back, then you might have a point. I said, you might be on to something. You don't see that very often. My son, for example, three years old, he'll never kick it back, but that's because of me. You know, I'm, we don't yeah. kick balls around here. We throw them. So um, in the hierarchy that I just described, you would have hitting first, and you would have obviously catching that ball. And then you would have in the third uh, part, it would be defense. You know, you have to learn how to defend. 
And um, once you got that down and the next step would be hitting because it doesn't matter how much you hit if you can't, you know, if you never get a turn to hit because you can't get three outs. So um, the, the next step would be hitting and the step after that would be base running and then you already get strategic and tactical. So we tried to build it up by saying, hey, we got to learn how to throw then we have to learn how to catch the ball. Once we do that, um, we take it from there to hitting and then we take it to base running and then strategics. Not to, not to get too detailed with the throwing part, but there is with the real young kids, I do want to get your opinion on this. The real young kids, you know, the baseball is pretty big. Their hands are small. Um, what are some of the things you may teach to adjust that? Because, you know, you could have perfect mechanics, but your hands too too small. That ball is going to go flying. Well, there are two examples I can give you. Number one, the 10 and under play with an eight inch ball. They don't play with a nine inch ball over here. So, I mean, for me, that's, that's a no brainer. I would do it in 12 and under as well, but you know, if the European Federation doesn't do it and the world Federation doesn't do it, then it makes no sense to do it domestically because then the kids go to international tournaments and they can't handle the ball. Um, That's number one. Number two, when the kids go from the 12 and under, to the under 15s in Europe, they change fields and they go from the little league, not from the little league, from the softball field, basically. They go from the softball field to the, to the, to the field that the big leaguers are using. It's the same, you know, the adult field. Um, what we do then is we, let, we teach the, the guys who are in their first year, 13-year-olds who are making the transition from the small to the big field. If they're on the left side of the infield, for example, they will learn how to throw the ball to first base one half. They won't, they, we won't teach them to throw the ball directly because what happens is they start arching and then they just airmail the ball. So a kid with great mechanics on the small field, very successful, he sees the distance and they got a coach telling him, you got to throw it all the way there. Their mechanics have to change because they're physically not strong enough to make that throw. And we decided that it would make sense that if they go straight to the ball or if they go to their backhand, if they're playing on the left side of the infield, that they should only throw the ball one hop to first base and by, uh, with intention, with intent. So that means they're going to hop the ball about 25 feet before first base. It'll be a clean bounce for the first baseman, not a scoop ball. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned the, the uh, smaller baseball. You know, in Japan, they've been doing that for years. And if you try to introduce that in the States, uh, you'll be in court um, because, you know, parents will go crazy. Oh, that's not real baseball. And that's, it is tough when you make changes. There's always that initial, you know, uh, difficult thing that people can't deal with. And then later on, they start realizing, wow, that makes a lot of sense. Sometimes we need to use common sense in the game. And again, I commend you because the second part of that was throwing the ball into the ground, you know, to make the throw. Because not only are you doing what you're saying mechanically, but now the first baseman's got to work on some things too, right? Because he's got to catch the ball Mm -hmm. in the bounce. It might skip. I mean, there's a lot of skill development going on there. Um, what other things do you guys do? Because I love the interesting things that other countries come up with those ideas. Because it'd be interesting, how did you come up with that idea? Because I always tell coaches, be innovative, but you still got to think about it. How, what was the thought mm. process? See, that the, there's an advantage and a disadvantage to not being born into baseball. I think that if you are born into baseball in America, if your father, your grandfather, everybody around you, you live in the southern state, in the warm state, like the moment you're born, get, you know, the diapers, a glove and a ball and a bat. Um, I think that your mind is consumed already. Like our minds, for example, with soccer are consumed. Those guys, you know, they're so, they're so um, expert at what they do that new ideas take long times, you know, for changes to, to come. That's baseball in the States would be soccer in, in Europe, for example. Mm-hmm. You can't just, you know, changes take time to be introduced. And with us being um, not baseball born uh, coaches, 
we have played other sports like for longer times. Like I was in martial arts for almost 10 years because of my family. I played Olympic handball for, for eight years. Wow. You got uh, stuff that, that, you know, in, in, in the States, guys my age, they, sometimes they don't even know what Olympic handball is because it doesn't, didn't exist 20 years ago in the States, for example. And having those uh, sports, you, you have other resources, you know, your, your, your view broadens. And you're like, hey, this is something they do in these sports. Maybe it makes sense to do it in other sports too. And you see that a lot in, in um, sports that are not um, German, where coaches will, will take stuff out of other sports and say, hey, we can apply this to baseball. Maybe it makes sense. Most of the stuff makes no sense. And in the long run, you know, it ends up going out the window. But um, I've seen stuff done in Turkey by people who've never heard of baseball, where I'm like, you know, 90% of what you're doing is borderline dangerous, but there's 10% of it. I'm going to, I'm going to use that, you know? You know, and, that, and that's what I love about international baseball, traveling the world, learning from other countries, seeing different things. You know, interesting sitting with my wife watching baseball, major league baseball. You know, my wife hasn't followed the game that much. And she'll ask me, she said, why is he doing it that way? Why not this way? And then all of a sudden I'm thinking, wait a second, you're right. You know, why, why is he doing it that way, right? So it opens up the mind. Now, the other part I like yeah. about what you're doing, you mentioned martial arts, Olympic handball. Handball, I'm assuming that's running, throwing the ball and catching it, trying to score into a net, right? I've seen that. It's like, it's a combination. Imagine soccer, but on a basketball court. Yeah. And instead of kicking the ball, you got to throw it into a goal. But the rules are more like rugby and American football, but not like yeah. football where somebody fouls, uh, you know, holds a guy and somebody blows a whistle. You got to lay flat on your back for a referee in Olympic handball to blow a whistle. So it's very physical and um, it's very popular in Germany. I could walk into a, let's say, second division, not even first division professional, second division handball team right now and give those guys baseballs and have them throw against the wall, just holding the ball and throwing it. And there'll be nobody on the team with a shuffle step, throwing it below 90 miles an hour. Wow. Well, you know what? Big advantage, you know, because you got your master's in sports science, your mass communication, which is important. You're talking about these other skills, martial arts with the balance and the, and the techniques and all that. The handball, which I, when I watched that boy, throwing technique, right? I mean, footwork, you know, catching and, and the toughness, right? Because you got to get tough a little bit. All these things have got ha, ha, made you a much better coach, I would think. I would encourage other coaches to get involved in other things like this, no? Well, you look at it, you just look at how we recruit and how you recruit in the United States. I mean, if you have a, a, a multiple sport guy, a guy who plays football and baseball, college coaches appreciate that a lot, you know, because they know they're getting a guy who's got maybe a little less wear and tear because in the offseason, he doesn't keep throwing, but he plays another game. And um, I've heard scouts say the same thing, you know, about football and baseball. And we've been trying very hard with no success so far to do the same thing over here at the club level, trying to cooperate with uh, handball teams by, by saying, with handball clubs saying, listen, why don't we get together and your handball guys, because our seasons don't really collide. They only have like an intersection part of about yeah. three weeks that uh, our baseball guys play handball in the off season instead of doing strength and conditioning and uh, your handball guys play baseball. But the first thing everybody says, no, 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 you just want our guys and they're, they're afraid to lose their players, you know, and, you don't have that problem in the States because it's uh, in high school. It's not like they're going to play handball for, for football for a different high school than they play baseball for. So right. that is something that we're working on, but it's very, very difficult. And it might take more time than I, than I thought it would. 
Yeah, I can see that because we're seeing that at the travel level here. Most of our kids are playing travel ball, as you know, all year round. They don't let, you know, they don't want them to play other sports sometimes. Um, but again, multi-sport athletes, it's been proven. That, I mean, if you ask, if you ask almost every major leaguer where they multi-sport athletes, they'll tell you yes, straight across the board. Some of the greatest golfers, and I think you know this in the world, um, were multi-sport athletes. Very few, they did a study, I think like one or two at the top level golfers only play golf. I mean, so that gives you an idea. Now, listen, we talk about the ABC a lot, um, the American Baseball Coaches Association. You know, ISG encourages all coaches around the world to join the association. Um, if they can come go to the convention, that's fantastic. I know it costs more to go to the convention, but they get so much. They get all the videos. It's not that expensive to join as a member. So I just want to mention on the show again, folks, go to abca.org. It's a great organization. Albert spoke in there. And just recently you spoke at the international meeting um, at the ABC. I want you to kind of mention a little bit what you talked about there. Um, I had a, a study that I um, that I did, I conducted about the relative age effect. Now the relative age effect um, strikes, uh, describes the phenomenon that players who are born um, spread out through the year are being um, treated differently because um, uh, guys might be older as, as old as 11 months older than, than one of their peer players. Like you could be born in January and you can be born in December, but you all be born the same year and be treated the same way. And statistics and contact sports over the last 30 years have shown that um, the players who are born earlier in, to the cutoff date um, usually get preferred by the coaches as at the under 10, under 12 and under 15 levels because they're just physically stronger, more mature. They have, um, a cognitive advantage, if you will. They're more successful uh, at the time. However, that uh, advantage diminishes as they enter, as they exit adolescence. So if they're 18 and over, all of a sudden you see at the, at the, at the adult level that it's spread out evenly like it would be statistically um, normal uh, and like it is in society. Like we have the spread out is the same. So um, the study I conducted was on the relative age effect on baseball in Germany, which was, hasn't been done before. And it was interesting as a result because we had two cutter. We had basically two spikes. We had one in the third quarter of the year and one in the first quarter of the year. The first quarter of the year is very normal because the Olympic Committee has January 1st as a cutoff date. We couldn't really make sense out of why there would be a, a third quarter um, um, uh, players that would be in the third quarter. We had like 25% there and 25% in the first quarter. And the second and the fourth quarter were like 10% or, you know, to add up to a hundred anyway. Mm -hmm. um, what I'm trying to say is uh, what we found out was that um, not only did we uh, see the relative age effect on uh, as it is uh, traditional, but because the baseball guys play pony and they play little league um, and tournaments like that, that have an American cutoff date and your cutoff date is bound to school because players that age play in school sports. So August 1st or September 1st would be a cutoff date in the United States. And because we play at that competition as well, our guys, our top players are born either in the first quarter or they're born in the third quarter. And it told us basically that we also make the same mistake everybody else is making. We're just making it um, on two cutoff dates. So we're choosing the top elite players based on their performance at international tournaments, not on based on talent. So we should be doing is, if we were doing it right, the talent would be spread out evenly over four quarters. I hope that wasn't too complicated to describe, but yeah, no, no. Trying to... that, that makes that makes sense. And you know, the question I have there is, um, how do we solve it? I guess for a local league, you know, when mm -hmm. because of, because of the cutoffs they have, and don't forget, I think I remember in the Pan Am games early on in Latin America, 
Um, when we had our 12U team in the U.S., you know, there were biological ages, you know, meaning, like you said, kids develop differently, not only the age, but they also develop difference. How, how do you work all this together? When, when you want to resolve the problem, you have to, uh, you have to um, basically work with your coaches. You have to make sure that the coaches understand that this problem actually exists. Um, mm -hmm. What you can also do is you can see uh, around the globe that cutoff days vary uh, depending on where people are. So, for example, in Japan, the school year starts April 1st and baseball is bound uh, in Asia to school like it is in the U.S. So if you were if we as Germans would were to participate in uh, more Asian baseball, for example, play against Japan and play against um, um, Korea and those countries and Taiwan, um, you would have to have a roster that is close to their cutoff date. And the next thing you know, we would have three. So we would have the first one for Germany, the second one for Japan, for Asia, and the third one we would have for the US. The fourth one, you can only work in the Southern Hemisphere. So you have Australia and South Africa. However, those, those, uh, those two places are also club-based system because of you know, the Europeans having uh, moved there several hundred years ago. So the sports system there is very similar to ours. Uh, in South Africa, for example, the, the school year starts in, on, in December and the same, it's very similar to Australia, but their cutoff dates are January 1st, like they are in Europe. So I haven't figured out the, the fourth uh, semester yet, but I got three of them figured out at least. Well, I'll tell you what, I want to see you because I think it's very interesting. We'll have to have another discussion on this, but it'd be, I want to see in the future if we can organize the world, you know, I mean, because that could be a, a great task to try to organize the world in this kind of system to develop players. But to put it simple, what about young, what about the young kids when you have a player that's 12 years old? Now in Europe, I know it's 15 under, 12 under, but wait, let's say you take your 12 under and you have a 11 or 12 year old who is very high skilled, who's dominating. I mean, really dominating that level. Um, should we be moving that kid up and vice versa? If we have an older player that's not ready yet, should we bring him down to a lower level? Um, what you're describing is basically called biobanding. What you do is you, um, you don't cluster them. You don't put them in groups based on their chronological age. What you do is you run certain tests with them and you don't look at their age. You see, for example, let's take a very, you know, a simple one would be a 60-yard dash. You mm -hmm. have guys who run the 60, then you have, got, you have 15, 16-year-olds who can run the 60 and 66, 67, and you have 18-year-olds um, that just don't look like 18-year-olds, but they look more like 15-year-olds and they run it slower. Now, there could be different reasons for it, but what we do is we take um, the diagnostic testing that we run with the guys twice a year as a foundation of where they should be practicing. Now that has to, when you do that, next thing you know, you have to talk to a kid who's just in puberty, who's having all the trouble in the world to begin with. Mm -hmm. um, and now you're telling him that a 16, 17 year old will be in the group with the 14 and 15 year olds. Now that's a different right. set of problems that we have to address, you know, and then the sensitivity training is part of it, you know, that the coaches know, yeah. how do we talk to these players about this? And um, Obviously, the younger ones, like you described, it's easy to move those guys up. Usually, you move them up, you even jump a level sometimes. We have 12 and under players. The hard That's the hard part psychologically. And as far as yeah. pedagogics is concerned, you have parents who, you know, they've struggled with the kid. They know what he's going through. They've lived with him. And uh, I feel for him because I was always a little guy, you know, and I was un, uh, undersized. And in a country like Germany, where everybody's six foot two, you know, playing a physical sport like handball specifically, you know, you get pushed around a lot, you get overlooked a lot, it's normal. 
Um, but it would have helped if, for example, instead of sitting on a bench in, in, a, in a certain team, maybe move down one age group and actually get game time and develop better. You know, that's, that's something that we can, that we can run in a practice setting, but not at the, at the league level. You know, it's interesting. You said uh, you didn't do very good in school. Well, you, you, you must be doing something right. Cause it sounds pretty good. And I'll tell you this, the, the uh, part about the kids going up and down, the reason I'm concerned about that is because, you know, we have a lot of young kids in the U.S. that want to play the game of baseball. Like you said, they're not ready yet, mature-wise, whatever the reason may be, mentally, you know. Um, and we lose those kids by the age of 13, 14. They, they stop playing the game. So if we don't make a change, we're not going to keep them long-term. Am I that far away? Well, you know, it's, it's very difficult to, to, to break down a problem like that, even, even though you described it very well. For us, it's... Um, the kid has to have a desire, you know, motivation is something that has to start from the inside. And um, as much as I've tried in the past, when I was younger, when I had a player who was very talented, you know, we tried as an adult, you talk to, you got to do this, you know, and, and, and at some point you catch yourself saying, you got to do this for me, you know, or you got to do it for the team, right. which is basically the same when we say it, you know, when you say you got to do it for the team, you're asking for the player's help. What we had to come to a realization, what helped me personally was, the player is not responsible for his talent. You know, some guys are just born that way and then are just physically abnormal. You know, they're just super fast. They can throw very hard. They grasp the game of baseball like that. You know, game speed, they dictate game speed at every level that they play. But usually when you look at those players, they didn't have to do much to do so if they do it very early. They're just mm -hmm. super talented. And finding the combination, I learned that from uh, Don Snedden who was inducted into the Hall of Fame uh, at the ABCA this year, he had a great graph where he showed talent, commitment, both, and neither war. It was like a four split. You know, you had talent in one, commitment in the other, and then both in the one side. And he said with, that coaches are usually very preoccupied with the guys who are in the T column, like the talented ones, mm -hmm. where 80% where of our players, or maybe even more, depending on where you are, are the committed ones that we neglect. And once we came to that realization, it was like, you know, when kids quit, um, there's not much you can do to keep them from going, I think. Now, if you create a different environment um, and the kids stay, there's still, I think, motivation from the inside that they want to stay. If you have a toxic environment, it doesn't matter which sport it is, a kid will quit because he just doesn't want to be around it. I, I agree. Now, but I do want to bring up this scenario and get your opinion on it. Okay, I got an 11-year-old kid. Average, maybe a little bit below average skill-wise right now. I mean, they're still growing. He's still developing. Loves the game. Works hard. Wants to really progress. That's my concern is that we do we really know that this 12-year-old is not going to be a good high school player, a college player, professional player, and possibly, as tough as it is, a major league player. My concern is if we don't keep them training and doing the right things, and having fun and things you talked about, we may never know if that player can be there. And that's these kids, we're losing these kids. And I hate to lose mm. them because we have an opportunity to, to keep them long-term, I guess is the goal I'm looking at. Mm. Well, what we've tried to do is we like to work with A and B rosters. For example, with the, with the German national team, they have a pony team and they have a national team. So mm. the pony team has a different cutoff date. So they're basically saying, we're going to take the best guys out of this group, no matter when they are born, and they're going to play for the 15 on the national team. 
but there are players that we like that that you know they are intriguing to describe it yeah. you know they're just intriguing and we think that they haven't reached uh, any of their potential yet and they put those kids on the pony team you know so we would have two teams an a and a b squad the kids are very disappointed when they don't make the national team but they you know for them it's like okay then i have to play on the pony team this year and usually the kids who do well at the pony level there's they take the job out of kids from the 15 under national team level the same year sometimes, you know, yes. because they get the playing op- opportunity at the international level with Pony. And next thing you know, a guy over there with the 15 under national team, he plays a prep tournament and he just doesn't pan out. And then they're looking at, well, who can we replace him with? And usually there's at least one or two guys in the Pony team within a span of like four months. You, you've seen him in January. You make the decision, this kid's going to be on this team. This kid's going to be on that team. And by April, the tables have turned, you know, and I think A and B teams, for example, where you just give another group of people um, the chance that you think, hey, these guys, I'm not sure about, you know, right. but the really, the ones that are weak, you can identify within the group, I think, very well. You know, the top sure. five guys and the low five guys are usually easy to identify, but there's a mix in the middle and I'm absolutely, you're absolutely right. I think what you said, I've made mistakes with players that signed professional contracts. Yeah, there was a player, Ludwig Glaser, uh, played for Heidenheim. He signed with the Angels and he played professionally. When he was at the under 15 all state level, he was going to be a player. I was going to cut. Other coaches told me I can't do it. And, and I, was, I, was, I was young and I just didn't see it. And when I saw him two years later, he, he greeted me and, and I didn't know who he was. He just looked very different, you know. And it would have been a player that I would have cut if the, it was my decision to make. But since three coaches said, don't cut him. I didn't do it, you know. I, today, I would probably go, no, I'm the manager. I'm going to cut this guy if I feel like it. But we all yes. miss, you know, we all miss. Of course. And, you know, we all know, and I mean, baseball says it all the time, you know, it, it, you know, selecting players is, is not perfect, and, and you're going to make mistakes. And it's no different than in training. How many mistakes have I made in 39 years training kids? And, I, you know, you try to hope to do your best. You know, the academy is interesting because, you know, um, Cuba, I've been to Cuba nine times. Um, you know, they started an academy 25, 30 years ago, even before MLB started academies around the world. The Cuba has been doing this, They've been very successful at it. Um, interesting because your academy there in Paderborn, you recruit from all over. Uh, talk about the ages, how, you know, what happens kind of all year round. Explain a little bit about the program and I'll ask you some questions about it. Mm-hmm. So uh, the Paderborn Academy, um, we work year-round, and we have an excellent indoor facility, probably one of the best in Europe, with the Aon Sport Park, which is a multi, uh, multi-court uh, uh, indoor park. It has a full-size infield and three batting cages in it. We're adding to that construction um, a new building, which will be baseball only, a uh, baseball infield with several batting cages in there, which is going to be built within the next two years, most probably. Um, we have a main field by AA standards with lights, and we have a little league field and a softball field, and our softball field is being refurbished um, as we speak. Uh, they're going to put AstroTurf in it, and there's going to be lights on it, and it's going to be not softball only. It's going to be 12 and under baseball, 10 and under baseball, and then the softball, obviously, because they, they share the field. Um, mm-hmm. The academy was founded in, in Paderborn about um, 10 years ago. Soccer already had an academy. It was uh, part of their license criteria to be in the top German divisions. They have to have a boarding facility where the players from outside can come in. It's, um, it's very common in Germany. So we could attach to that already existing administrative structure. And um, the building that uh, the guys are staying in is probably 100 yards from the baseball field. 
and uh, you can't see the baseball field from there. There's like a tree line. And we recruit those kids from all over Germany. We've already had, we've had a couple of international guys, but that's not our main game. Usually those international guys, they approach us. And in the past couple of years, or in the past year, I should say, the international guys um, have not been a priority to us because our job is to develop German baseball players um, uh, first and foremost. So we um, recruit them at age 15 to Paderborn, which is the transition age from 15 under to 18 under. And then they'll be in Paderborn uh, for the next four years. And they'll be in the sporting facility and they'll be, you know, with 24-7 supervision. Um, there will be tutors in there, uh, you know, people who help you in general life, like trying to um, not replace, but a company, uh, not replace the parents, but making sure that the kid has somewhere to go. There'll be like groups of five to one person that deals with them, for example. And then you have the baseball. So everything is like, an imagine it being one big campus um, that you go to school here, you live over there, and then the baseball facility is here and the indoor facility is there too. So you don't lose any time traveling. And um, like I said, the players are all, most of the guys that come here stay with us for four years and they finish high school. And in the past, we've sent those guys, um, two of them uh, into pro ball, but we've had some um, mixed feelings about uh, how they um, how they experienced pro ball and um, came to the realization that the college route is a better route for our guys. Yeah, I like the. I read an article where you said that, you know, your focus is on getting them from the college level. Also the play in the Bundesliga and also, right, to play for their top level club team. You know, start mm -hmm. there and then develop from there. What, what's different about your academy? Because I, I, I saw you wrote, you mentioned that somewhere where you said our academy is different in some ways. What are some of the different ways that you, things you do differently possibly in your academy that maybe other academies don't do? Well, I, I can only speak more about what we do. I mean, what we didn't invent the wheel, but um, since we have um, uh, a lot of guys who work in biomechanics and a lot of guys that um, have also played professional baseball, I think we have a great mix of coaches. You know, we have uh, currently three coaches, full-time staff that are former professional players. And then you have guys like me who've learned baseball, more like studios coaches, if you will. And um, that adds to a mix, you know, like I come up with stuff that sometimes is a little, you know, over the top. And my coaches are the coaches that work with us will keep me in check and go like, you can't do this with these kids. You know, and this is something that, you know, and then I go, all right, let's try and see where it goes. And they have ideas too. And that makes a great mix, I think. And um, having these facilities, you know, in, in proximity, like within each other, you know, you can basically, Hey, you go to the weight room now, come back in 20 minutes and the kid goes into an indoor weight room facility, indoor facility, does his weight room stuff, comes back 20 minutes later. The infrastructure here in Paderborn uh, is, a, is a big difference maker. But I think um, what, make, what makes a place is the people that run it, you know, and the people who work in it. And um, I think we've created a great culture here, a winning culture. And um, we've made sure that the club uh, is on board. So we have to make sure that the board members also understand that this is where we want to go. And they have to approve if this is the right way to go about it. Because on the short term, we lose these players. So we, we invest in these players for four years. And if they're very good, they're going to go play college for at least two years. But eventually, 99% will come back from college. And when they went to pro ball, they came back and some of them quit playing baseball altogether because pro ball was a disillusioning experience, to say the least. 
And um, the college players, they come back in their breaks, you know, they talk to our younger players, they work with them. Our guys look up to these kids, you know, and they and they tell them about their experience and they go to these places and tell about, you know, about the Paderborn Academy, about baseball in Germany. And they've become great representatives of, representatives of German baseball for us. And uh, eventually when they're done with college, usually these guys come back to Germany and then they play in the domestic league like you described. Um, they do also during their breaks, like, for example, when the college season is over and they come over for three months, they can play in the Bundesliga because it's an amateur league. So it doesn't violate any um, NCAA or NJCAA rulings. And um, eventually they come back, they play a couple of years in the Bundesliga and they help their teams. Sometimes, sometimes they go back to their local teams where they came from before they came to the academy. Some of them come back to Paderborn. It all has more to do with, you know, what are you going to study? What subjects are you going to pick? What's going to be your major? What's a good city to go to? And um, and then after that, they become coaches. And they're going to be much better than me and the guys that uh, uh, work with me um, that are studios coaches because now they're bringing something to the table that I didn't do. I didn't play collegiate baseball. I had no opportunity to do so. So my, my knowledge and my experience is limited and I can't turn the wheel back, you know, and have that experience as a player. Yeah, those are great points because you start to see also Major League Baseball um, sending players from Europe in the colleges, you know, because they I think they they understood they made their mistakes sending them a pro ball and the kids just weren't ready mature wise, education wise. They just weren't ready for that. And and, and in pro ball, you're on your own in some ways. College is more structured, organized. So I'm with you. Hey, you mentioned over the top. Um, I call it outside the box. We can call it whatever we want. Right. Thank you. The outside thinker, the question, the person that questions everything. I think it's good to question. Um, talk about maybe something over the top that you came up with. You had a discussion with your coaches. You convinced them to do it, and it was good. You know, I mean, sometimes it works, okay. sometimes it doesn't. Talk about some of that. Well, um, I think that uh, what we learned in at university when you study sports science, uh, a topic that comes up is differential learning. And differential learning basically takes a lot. Let's say you take a baseball swing and instead of swinging a baseball bat, you end up swinging uh, a broomstick, like a Betia stick, for example, that the Dominicans use or an over, overweight bat. And, you know, next thing you know, you got a foot on, one foot on a step and the other one on level. And um, differential learning uh, is basically trying to, you know, modify the movement that the body has to make adjustment, get engaged and, and try to find solutions for the problems. That was something that our coaches, the traditional coaches or the pro guys, they did not like in the beginning. They said, no, right. we should be doing the same thing over, over, over. And they were talking about making it more automatic. And if you do the same movement pattern, you know, it, it, becomes, um, uh, 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 it becomes easier for the person to repeat it. And, you know, differential learning tells you the exact opposite. So um, we do a lot of reps, but we try to keep them within, you know, a certain quality. That was something, you know, you know, getting the reps down and making it more quality and then going the differential route. Those were things that worked really well. And um, last year, I had the idea that I, th I, I said that our players should um, give each other the signals, that, that we shouldn't give signals to the players during games, like because we're a developmental program for them to understand the game better. Um, we said, you guys are going to flash signs like they did basically 120 years ago when yeah. managers were players, you know, the, the guy at bat would tell you, I'm going to hit and run here. You know, you want to take our guy would steal. Yeah. And it sounds great in theory. And it works. It worked really well during league play when um, the game speed was comfortable. 
when we went to national, we tried this for six months and with a lot of success, people didn't know what was hitting them because our third base coach was still giving signs, you know, and nobody knew what was going on. And the guys had an opportunity to make mistakes and then we would talk between innings and say, hey, this was not a good situation. This is a better count to do that. Did you see the arm of that player? You shouldn't have run here, blah, 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 all that stuff. But once we went to nationals, the game speed increased, the pressure was up and it was, they drew a blank. It was too much to handle. And that was, for example, um, something that I learned there. It took me too long. And it was one of our pro guys that said, your idea is brilliant. Your idea worked really well when they were comfortable. As soon as they got uncomfortable, they couldn't, they couldn't do it anymore because it was just not there anymore. You know, that's understandable, but I'll tell you what I love about it. And I'll throw this at you. I love a couple of things. I think we should be doing that in scrimmages. I think that it, it keeps the player engaged, thinking ahead, thinking, that, you know, in other words, what's the coach going to give me? You know, it's first and second. It's late in the game. You know, what, what, what is the coach thinking? If the player's thinking that, they got a better plan. They got a better idea. I love that. And I'll tell you why. And I'm going to throw this at you. Fifteen years ago, um, I was speaking at a conference somewhere. I can't remember where in Europe. And I said, uh, hey, listen, I asked the coaches. And this is so basic and so simple. I said, how many of you ask, tell your players the number of outs every time they're on base? Everybody raised their hand, right? It was all over the world. Some still do it. Then my question was, aren't we, spo- aren't we teachers? We're supposed to be teaching kids how to, te- how to learn the game on their own. Why aren't we asking them the outs? Or if you're at the higher level, why aren't they giving you the outs so they're doing all the thinking and you're not doing the thinking only? As basic as that is, that's what you're talking about. You want players to think on their own and think ahead because now we're getting better as a player, right? Yeah, I mean, it's exactly that. But what I've learned the hard way is that game pace is, is what they experience as game pace. So you have to know your players really well, in my opinion, and you have to know what kind of squad you're dealing with. And um, that's basically where I dropped the ball last year. These guys were not a team that we had maybe five or six years ago, players that were already ahead, way ahead, that could have done this better. And I think that plays a major role in it. Like for if you have a guy that uh, is a first year and you do this with the whole team and there's a guy within his first year, he gets to first base and he's looking at you and he's not going to show you the outs. He's going to look for somebody to help him, you know. But I agree with you. We're not birds, you know. We're not, we're not supposed to chew the food and then put it in their mouth so they, they have it comfortably warm and mushed up, you know. And, um, and, and for- I agree, man. And for our coaches out there, just so you know, what we would do is we'd say, we, you know, the kid would get to the base and we'd start him young at 10, you know, nine years old, 11. So how many outs, Joe? You know, and you have fun with them. You know, I, you know, they're like, well, I'm supposed to know the outs. Yeah. How many outs are there? And they, you know, the next time that you ask them again, they're almost ready for it because they don't want you to ask them. Right. They want to tell you the outs. So it's kind of fun in some ways. The other thing you mentioned, game speed. I think that's something that's extremely important right nowadays. That's starting to change. Talk about how you guys train um, because you do two things. One, game speed, but also you scrimmage a lot. I think twice a week I read. Talk about the importance of scrimmaging and game speed, why you do that more. Well, we don't have the opportunity to play against other teams all the time like you would have, for example, in, in San Diego. Like there'll be a team over here and there'll be a team over there and everybody in Florida. And you can just play basically four or five games a week. Um, the Germans are traditionally so used to practicing during the week and then playing a game on the weekend. Handball works like that. Soccer works like that. And baseball just doesn't. So we're teaching baseball on a larger scale. We're basically teaching it wrong, I think. 
because ga the game is so complicated and uh, once velocity start rising, speed becomes a factor. I mean, the way the ball just travels from A to B and uh, the adjustments you have to make, and you can only learn those by playing. And um, since we have limited staff, we can't play scrimmage games with live pitching um, three times a week and then play on the weekend because we play double headers. Sometimes we play a double header on Saturday and we play another double header on Sunday with the same team. So we have to make sure that we uh, spread out our resources. So what we've come up with is, is we play a lot of coaches pitch and um, which is basically um, batting practice, but with two full teams. And we play with six outs, two times three, so that we don't have to run in and out uh, every two minutes. And we stop the game uh, when there's a mistake being made, you know, when, be it on offense or on defense. And we get everybody together. And once, you know, the guys start clicking, sometimes they start running before I call because somebody picked up on the mistake. They just already run to the mound. They know he's going to call us in now. So coaches pitches a version because I hate batting practice with a vengeance. When there's one guy hitting and 25 guys standing around, you know, like back, it was something that was done back in the days and, and, and not only back in the days, but in professional baseball still, but for a reason, if you play that day, you want to have a relaxed setting before the game. And in Germany, a lot of teams will run batting practice on a Friday. And then they will have, have batting practice on the Saturday before the game. So they have batting practice before batting practice. And then they have a game. So it's a wasted opportunity to get better as far as I'm concerned. But this is the traditional way. And um, coaches pitch us what, what we do on um, either Thursdays or Tuesdays. And then we'll have a machine game where we set up a, 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 a pitching machine that will take over the pitching and then we'll play and we'll do that for 90 minutes. And we'll, like I said, stop and go. We'll set up the machine one day to curveballs. We even set up two machines at a time, one throwing a curveball, one throwing a fastball. And they don't know where the ball's coming from. And then we'll have one game during the week um, where, uh, where there'll be live pitching, which will be our bullpen day at the same time. So we don't have to go to the bullpen and do something else with the guys. And we'll have one day in the week that we use for instructional things like, you know, ground balls, that specific stuff. And, um, the guys will come in one by one also to work on individual things, like go into the cages and do front toss and stuff like that. That's the plan for 2022. And the other part of the game is the mental part. Um, you know, it's a game where kids are going to fail, right? They're going to make mistakes. You know, they're not going to feel good about something. How do you deal with that in, in your training when you're talking about the, the practices that you have, the scrimmage games? How do you work the mental part into it? Well, first of all, I have to say that this generation is, uh, is very, very uh, sensitive as far as that is concerned. You know, when you understand how hard-nosed the coaches were about 25 years ago, that it was more like military tone oh, that yeah. was touched. And then, and now you have, um, you have kids that you, you really have to understand, you know, how can I get the most out of this player? And that's the goal. You know, that was the goal 25 years ago, too. You want to get the most out of the player. And having only one way to do it and, or, or one way with, uh, with, with all the players mm -hmm. has, uh, has not proven to be very successful. So with baseball being loaded with failure, what we try to do is we try to make um, failure part of the learning experience like everybody else that I've talked to. Like understand like, what did you see? What, you, what do you take out of that strikeout? When you mm -hmm. come back, when you go in there next time, what do you know now that you didn't know before? And um, as far as day in, day out practices are concerned, Obviously, the guys love coaches pitch the most because you have a BP thrower and we probably have the best BP thrower in the world with Octavio Medina that uh, was, by the way, Don Snedden's player um, in Santa Ana. And um, 
uh, when he throws the ball at like 55 miles from like 30 feet, you know, they can actually turn on the ball. And uh, for us, that's not a measurement, you know, if a guy can hit or not. But now we're practicing base running, we're practicing defense, and the guys are actually getting some swings in. And uh, um, we're doing it all together. But as far as um, failure is concerned, it's been very challenging because the expectations are so high. They, for them, it doesn't matter if 300 is a good batting average. They don't understand why they're not hitting 500 or 600. And the expectation usually doesn't match um, the effort. And the effort is something that is hard to control because our guys really work hard. I mean, I can say that for all the academies in Germany, these guys spend every minute outside of uh, school and, and, and tutoring on the baseball field. They don't, you know, as far as I know, they don't party as much as, uh, as others would, would, would think, you know. But um, it's very, very difficult to, to make them understand that if you go, like, there'll be weekends where you go 0 for 8, but you might actually be on to something that will make you on the long run a better player. We try to explain it in waves. Like as they're younger, the waves are higher, you know, the downs are deeper and the highs mm -hmm. are higher. Like a guy will go in and be six for six at the Bundesliga level at the one game and then be over 20 the next. And the older they get, the flatter those waves will get. That's how we try to explain it to them for the long run. Love it. Alper, we're getting close to the end, but I do want to ask you a couple more things about German players. Um, what's their, what's the benefit that, the type of player German athlete is, um, how does it benefit a baseball player? Well, you know, most of the guys, like I said, they started on different sports. And um, there are two kinds of players that make the elite teams here. There are, guys that are, there are guys that play different sports who have been very, very successful at these more popular sports in Germany. And then there are players that have a baseball family background. Like we're seeing a lot of under 12s and under 15s where I start laughing because there's like four guys on the field that whose fathers I played on with the national on the national team, you know, and there's a guy pitching that I've never seen before and I go like, who's this guy? He throws like this and that guy. And so that's his son, you know, and then like, that can't be, you know, he looks exactly like him. So um, you have those two, two categories, you know, like players that. Um, have been very successful at a different sport and then made a transition to baseball or played both at the same time. And then you have players who, who basically grow up like American kids. You know, when you come to the ballpark at three o'clock, two hours before practice, there'll be somebody hitting in the cage. You see as a dad and his son is 10 year old and they're doing an hour, an hour and a half of one-on-one -on -one work and the expertise is there and the, the will is there from the kid, you know. Those are the guys that, that usually make the elite teams, you know. And then, um, from there on out, like I said, if they make the national teams, next thing you know, they're playing international baseball where all of a sudden they have to play every day. Um, unfortunately, it's not more, you know, to be like four or five tournaments for a national team player. So maybe 25 to 30 games that actually mean something during the year outside of league play. You know, we've got American kids that always want to come to Europe and play. Um, you know, sometimes when you don't understand the level of baseball there, you know, you think, oh, I'm going to Europe, I'm going to dominate. Um, the Bundesliga is very good. Explain a little bit about if a player from the U.S. was coming to play in the Bundesliga, what type of player would this have to be to be ready for that type of league? Well, let me give you an example. The best players I've played with and that I've seen in the past 15 years and that dominated in this league have played at least at the AA level, at the professional level. So these guys have, have proven that they have talent. They just lost the one-on-one -on -one battle for God knows what reasons, you know, they're, they're guys that they, they got off the plane, they got on the field and you could immediately see the difference. And we had it just recently with uh, uh, Jose Martinez, who was a, a Nicaraguan or Venezuelan, no, Venezuelan player, if I'm not mistaken. 
that played triple A with um, with um, St. Louis. And I mean, he was with us last year because of COVID. He couldn't get into the States. He would have probably gotten a spring training invite with the big league team. And it was, you know, off the charts, like a switch hitting shortstop. Just the ball just finds him at his position. And those guys have been very successful. And then there are players, you know, collegiate players that are, are just the right fit for the team that by accident, maybe, you know, by coincidence, that they just uh, are really good guys. They help coaching and they, and they play okay, you know, and okay, I mean, they don't play for the German championship, but they also don't get relegated into a subdivision with those guys. And those guys usually end up, uh, you know, coming back because of their personalities and, um, they found a second home maybe you know as far as the quality is concerned we have everything from ex major leaguers here uh all the way down to guys who played division three baseball you know and not to talk not to bad mouth but we had a guy here that played the, who was the player of the year in division three and he dominated this league as well you know um but the thing is it's very difficult to dominate this league if you're uh, uh if you're a position player for example because game two is a foreigner game and mm -hmm. that means that in game two there's usually a guy taking the bump that throws between 90 and 94, you know, and he will go seven innings. So because this is a pitch, get, pitch catch league, you know, or a pitch catch, pitch catch game, it becomes difficult in game two to actually, you know, do damage. And the German guys are not far behind. You know, we have a lot of guys throwing um, between 85 and 90 miles an hour. And the guys who throw harder than that usually don't play in the domestically. But the foreign help we get has to be, has to be much better than what we have domestically. Yeah, it makes sense. And on the flip side, you gave a talk at the ABCA to college coaches about recruiting German players, specifically, I'm sure, with your academy. Um, talk about what you told them. Why should a college player want, or excuse me, college coach want to recruit players in Germany? Well, what we've noticed, and I learned this, uh, uh, it was a hard learning process for me because the American system is still, uh, it's very different from what we have Um Imagine that you're recruiting in a certain area as a, as a junior college because you don't not all junior colleges recruit nationwide, and you might my three colleges might be after the same guy, and one of them is going to get him, and and I might have a guy in Germany that is close to this guy that nobody's ever heard of. So I think it's an untapped market for the for the colleges, um, and obviously with the connection that we're trying to create, the network we're trying to build. Um, it has to be transparent with video and it has to be a good fit for everyone. You know, it has to be a good fit right now. I'm talking to a coach, for example, for a Juco division three, where I have a player that might be interested in going there. And the first meeting that you have with the same players, like, well, I want to go to UCLA, you know, yeah, I want right. to play I want like to, you know, Stanford. I, why, why haven't they called yet? You know, what about Clemson? You know, and, ah. and I'm like, Oh, well, you got to slow down, you know? And then we figured out that this might be a good fit for the player. And, um, Ego can play a huge role. And like I said, your data can't be loaded. You know, you can't tell a guy that he's throwing 86 during the games and then he goes over there and throwing 81. And it might be your gun was, you know, a little off that day when you uh, recorded the 86. So I think it's an untapped market. And um, what the speech I gave at the ABCA convention was not only about the paddleboard kids, because we want to help all the, all the talented mm -hmm. guys from the academies, the kids who put in the work that have right. the talent. I showed. I showed, I showed a video there and immediately they're like, I want that guy, that guy, and that guy. Who are those people? I mean, there's a guy who's six foot eight throwing the ball at 90 miles an hour and he's only 17 years old. And I mean, if this kid was in, in central Florida, some the phone would be ringing off the hook, but nobody knows about it, you know? And the other aspect of all this is education because, you know, being in Europe all those years, I've, I've traveled all over Europe and lived there also education is a very high level. So they're getting a pretty educated player, possibly even with 
I don't know, maybe an international internet uh, scholarship program for education. Exactly. Um, what we've noticed is once the players are there and they do okay, you know, they find a way to see, hey, we have we have money available for international players. They, they don't even have to touch, you know, scholarship money for baseball players most for most of these guys. And um, because the major difference between uh, Germany and the United States is, believe it or not, uh, university is for free here. You actually yes. get you get a you get a pass that you can use the train. Uh, for free um so you're actually getting paid to go to university if you wow. you know if you run the numbers right and um the kids who go over like i said they have to they have to have the they have to be the right fit for the program that they go to so they actually get game time and um for us we, we we've decided you know if you are really as good as everybody says you are go the college route you get drafted you know and you don't have to go at age 16 sign a professional contract and then it's basically a kid going over and a broken half a man is coming back. You know, that's been my experience. Most of these guys are very, very unhappy when they come back. And we cannot afford to lose these guys. Like we cannot, we, our population is too small, our baseball population, to have a guy go play pro ball for three, four years and then just go like, I don't want to do this anymore. You know, it's heartbreaking for us. And uh, I think with the college route, we're on track to that. I think it's, it's the right way to go. And I think we have something to offer as well because the players have the quality to play at these levels. And for all the college coaches who listen to the show, we will put Alper's information out there so you can get a hold of them. Uh, if you have any questions or you want, you're interested in learning more about his players, players in Germany. Um, Alper, let's finish it with this, and and then you could add anything at the end you want. Um, you know, we, we I'm going to jump back to the outside the box thinking now. Anything you you're thinking about right now for the academy coming up? You know, um, that you might change, that you might introduce. Uh, give us a little insight on that. Well, we're um, we're trying to figure out because we're building this new facility, uh, and I was at the ABC convention and I was at the exhibition there as well. Um, we're thinking about TrackMan, and we're think thinking about installing it permanently in the indoor facility. But wow. once you start saying stuff like that, you know, um, uh, now you have to figure out, hey, who's gonna who's gonna operate all the data, you know? Mm -hmm. And then if if nobody raises his hand, it's gonna be the guy that actually asked for the for the track man, and then they're gonna point in my direction. So um, we have to kind of figure out: is it something that we need? Is it something that we can profit from? Is it something that the players will profit from? And um, we already use Repsoto, for example. I think all those um, machinery things, the database things, can help us not only develop the players, but also make the transition to the United States maybe smoother. Because if you have Repsoto data that you can give to a college coach, you basically go like, this is what I didn't hold the gun. This is what the data says about this player. And he can put it in perspective. Another thing that we're doing right now is we're pursuing the, the option with um, Perfect Game. Um, having a, a tournament in, in Brno every year now for the 12 and under, 15 under, 18 under. And we know that a lot of college coaches, they like to look at the third-party data because they also know that that data is not loaded either. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's valid. And what we need to do is we need to create transparency. That's something that I'm thinking about right now. How do we make sure that the coaches understand that we're not loading our data, but that can't be based on a person or a personal relationship? So perfect game is one way, rep Soto and uh, things like Trackman are other ways. That those are things that are, I'm, I'm thinking about right now on a, on a databases. But my my chain of thought, you know, if you call me tomorrow and do the same interview, I might say something very different again. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, I'm with you. I think I really believe that technology does help keeps players engaged, and and then the numbers don't lie. Um, the other thing is, you know, a lot of times, you know, you see now internationally, um, major league teams are watching even. 
with the WBSC streaming live games, you know, a lot of times they don't have to send their scout. You know, they can watch it live stream, get some real data right there. So I think there's a lot of benefits to that. And uh, I agree with you. Listen, I can't thank you enough. I know you got a lot of work you're doing, and I really appreciate joining the show. You're doing a great stuff for German baseball, but you're doing great stuff for baseball around the world when people get a chance to listen to you and talk about how you're developing and helping develop athletes there. Thank you. It's uh, it, it was awesome, man. I like talking to you, and we have never met in person. I've heard so many good things about you, you know, and uh, it's great that we actually got a chat, and, and this was a great opportunity. This was a lot of fun, too. Well, we're going to do it again because we just, we're just getting a little bit of what you're doing. I want to learn more because that's why I do the show too. I mean, this isn't a money-making business. It's a business where I get to share all over the world, you know, expertise of others, but also I get to learn at the same time. Mm. Um, and that's why I continue. You're a smart man, Peter. You're a smart man. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm, yeah. I don't know about that. Cause I'm, I'm, I was like you, I wasn't real good in school. I didn't care for school much, you know? So, but I encourage obviously to, think of outside the box. And one thing I always leave our coaches when I do the seminars around the world, I believe, and, and I'll leave you with this. I believe that we have to learn from each other. But what I also believe is that you have to be innovative and think on your own and come up with your own ideas through own research data and all the information that you have. Cause I think we need to be creative as coaches. We can't always just be learning from others. I don't know. I don't know your thoughts on that. And maybe I'll let you finish with that. How's that? I tell you what, coming from a country or living in a country that is not uh, number one baseball, I, um, I took a class a couple of months ago with the German Olympic Committee where there were guys like me from other sports. And we spent a year and a half together. And I have learned more in those, in those uh, 18 months about my sport and the way others looked into it um, than I did in the years before going into baseball specific things. You know, Because once you're in Germany and Europe, you go into these clinics um, there are not many guys, you know, it's always the same people talking, even if it's different topics, you know, that's why going to the ABCA, like you mentioned earlier, makes a lot of sense, especially for guys from outside the US, because it's prime data for us, it's prime information. But um, here I've noticed that uh, the best way to get better for us is to, to in, in Germany, look at other sports and especially the ones that are very successful. Those guys usually know a lot more about your sport. I once had the Olympic javelin throwing coach. I wrote him an email saying that I want to know what they do in practice because we think that it's very close to what we do with the pitchers. And he wrote me an email this long back. I mean, this is the national team coach, a full-time guy who's, who's making a lot of money, you know, with the Olympic committee. And um, this guy wrote me an email breaking down the pitching mechanics that he's never played before and going like, how dare you compare this to that? And you guys are throwing on the slope where we're trying to throw the ball in the air and blah, blah, blah. And it's, I'm, I'm reading this and I, I'm, it's like reading an email from a baseball expert. And this guy only touched, you know, on the surface and said, you, we, you and I, we can go back and forth about this if you like. But um, it was very, very impressive to get. I, I still remember everything that he wrote. And this is a javelin guy who never thought about baseball. I mean, it was, was mind blowing. Love it. And I'll tell you what, this is why we have to have a second show. So we're going to do that. We're going to have a second <laughs> show. We're going to bring you back. We'll wait a, you know, a month or so because you'll be doing other things new. We'll, we'll ask a lot more questions. Alper, Kent, and I agree with you. We never met. I saw you at the ABCA and then you had the run. Um, but Tom O'Connell told me a lot about you. You know, obviously, you know Tom well. Um, and just keep up the great work. And uh, we're always here to help. As you know, ISG Baseball myself, uh, anybody else, we're always uh, willing to help any way we can. So and I want to wish you best of luck, uh, you know, this coming up season. Thank you. Thank you so much, Peter.
All right, that is Albert Boskert from Paderborn, Germany. All right, that special thank you to Albert. Special thank you to Brian Crock, our producer with the Lineup Media Group. Also, thank you everybody in the US and around the world. Continue to spread the show. Again, we, we, we just cannot thank you enough for what you do for us, all our listeners. And remember, stay healthy, be safe, God bless you, and we'll see you on the next show. This has been Baseball Outside the Box with Peter Caliendo. Listen online at BaseballOutsideTheBox.com and subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and all major podcast outlets. Join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter. Get all of our podcasts now at lineupmedia.fm. This podcast was a presentation of lineupmedia.fm.